2: Welcome to the Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to the Megan Kelly Show. Later, we're going to have the latest on the Biden mega donor, crypto billionaire, who has been exposed as a fraud. This is unbelievable. We're going to go in depth. Plus, the alarming number of men out of work. Permanently, it seems, and the effect it's having on our society. But we begin with former President Trump. We are now just hours away from his apparent announcement, expected announcement, that he is running for president in 2024. Mr. Trump truthing early this morning, quote, hopefully today will turn out to be one of the most important days in the history of our country. His announcement comes after Carrie Lake lost her bid to become the next governor of Arizona. Uh, Lake has yet to concede, tweeting out Arizonans no BS when they see it. The GOP, meantime, inching closer and closer to officially gaining control of the House. They've already been projected to win, but it's not official yet. There is still a lot of soul searching going on regarding what went so wrong uh, a week ago today for the party. Senator Ted Cruz said yesterday he is, quote, so pissed he cannot even see straight. So it's going to be interesting to hear from my next guest. Joining us now for his first interview since winning re-election, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. Senator, welcome back to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, Megan.
2: Yeah, great to see you. So Ted Cruz is very angry. Um, How are you feeling?
0: I guess I don't get angry. I try to get even. I try to uh, figure out how we do better in the future, what we did wrong, and look to the next election. I try not to look backwards. Um, The one thing that is very clear, both in in my reelection, which we won overwhelmingly and across the country, is we're the party of rural America. You know, I had 10 counties where I got over 85 percent of the vote. I had another 10 counties or 15 counties where I got over 80 percent of the vote throughout most of rural Kentucky. I averaged over 70 percent of the vote in our two big cities. I lost 60, 40. Fortunately for Kentucky, our big cities don't dominate the population. But you go to Georgia. And Atlanta basically equals the population outside of Atlanta. So the urban equals the rural vote in Georgia. And it used to be otherwise. You know, Georgia was Republican for a couple of decades, but the rural vote outnumbered the, the, the urban vote considerably during that period of time. And now Atlanta's grown to become even. So there are a lot of different ways to look at it. Personally, I think one way to look at it is we have to get more uh, African-American vote. I think we also need to get more every sort of uh, ethnic group, Asian-Americans as well. I think we have great inroads there, Hispanic-Americans, but particularly African-Americans. If we can get to where we're getting a more substantial portion of that vote, I think there is a is a way that where the urban-rural divide can be broken and we can do better.
2: I know that uh, when you won, you won earlier in the evening last Tuesday, you you believed that you were in the middle of a red wave, as so many had predicted. Now, it's funny to listen to some of these more left leaning shows and anchors say, you know how the, the right was predicting a red wave. Well, that's not true. It was coming from the left and the right. Virtually everyone, with just a couple of exceptions, believed the only question was how big the wave would be. So you thought you were in the middle of a red wave. It didn't wind up happening. Why? Why do you think it didn't?
0: You know, there are some interesting things that are going to have to be analyzed. There are people saying that we won a significant majority of the votes for Congress, but didn't win a significant number of new seats. Some of that has to do with how the uh, seats are districted. So gerrymandering can have something to do with it. I also think that it's very, very hard to win a vote where the ballots are mailed to everyone. You know, when it used to take some initiative to vote, I think that the voters tended to be. People with more initiative and people, uh, uh, I believe, to be probably more involved and maybe better informed about politics. Uh, now, like in Nevada, you know, it's very difficult to win when um, the franchise has become complete through mailing the ballots to everyone. But I think it's also harder to verify who these are. Now, I'm not saying there was widespread fraud, but I am saying it's easier to verify who someone is if they show up. And the, the sort of tragic comedy of Arizona not looking at Chad's, but looking at everyone's signature um, shows that they know that there could be a problem and they're trying to prevent it. But that problem doesn't exist when you vote in person with an ID. And so I really think that uh, it also, I guess, creates more uh, doubt on the part of the voter. You know, even though I can't say, oh, well, there was fraud. It makes me worry that I see all the candidates that I'm for winning on the same day of the election. And then I see drip by drip by drip as the votes keep coming in over weeks that they lose their elections. Mm -hmm. And so I think if they want to encourage, you know, the left says they, you know, it's all about democracy for them. If they want to encourage support of Democratic voting, we'd all be more encouraged to believe the results if they all came in in a very timely fashion or counted that day. Why a state would take early voting and not start counting them before the day of the election It takes two weeks for Arizona to count its mail-in ballots. For goodness sake, they should start counting them two weeks before the election's over. So, um, you know, I I think that there are a lot of things going on with the way the elections are run that make a difference. The 10 states that send out ballots to everyone, nine out of 10 are dominated by Democrats. Utah is the only exception. Mm. Um, So I think how we run our elections is important. And like in Kentucky, I think 95 to 98 percent of people showed up and voted in person, which I think is a better way to run an election.
2: It's the way we always used to do it and worked out fine. And there wasn't a lot of election denialism going on back in those days. What about Trump? Um, New York Post, Wall Street Journal, some on Fox pointing the finger at him as uh, responsible for bad candidate quality, making certain candidates Embrace his election denialism. J.D. Vance has an op-ed out today saying don't blame Trump. What the GOP needs to do is build a turnout machine, get more money, saying our party has one major asset contra conventional wisdom to rally the voters we need. President Donald Trump now more than ever, we need his leadership to turn these voters out. And and we suffered from the from his absence from the stage. So which camp are you in? (laughs) I think it's
0: easy for people to have arguments when you lose. Everybody's got an argument because nobody wants to take responsibility. But it's probably an all of the above that there's a little bit of everything involved in why people lose. But when you say it's candidate quality, you know, if I were one of those candidates, I'd take offense to that. But just for example, Dr. Oz. I think he's an intelligent, well-spoken. He was on daytime television for ten to fifteen years. He connects with people. I've seen him do the one-on-one town halls. He really can talk to people and listen to people. And hands down, he knew the information better and could, do, you know, present himself in a debate. Uh, his opponent was, it was and is severely impaired, and yet the opponent won. So I think it's unfair to Doctor Oz, and also not an accurate thing to say, oh, Fetterman was the better quality candidate and Mm -hmm. Oz was uh, lacking in quality. That's not right. Um, To blame it all on Trump's not right. To blame it all on McConnell's not right. Um, It's a combination of things, but it's also, I guess I'm not big into the blame game. I'm into what do you have to do moving forward? Um, For example- That may require some blame. Say again?
2: That may require some blame, right? Like if if, if there was one major- (laughs) force working for evil, you you know, like the like some tell like John Podorets, I keep mentioning him because he's a never Trumper who really thinks Trump is to blame for all this stuff. Then we need to know that. Right. So, I mean, an honest look would would require factoring in everything and seeing whether it's real.
0: Yeah. And I guess. But the thing is, if I'm looking at Pennsylvania, um, I'm looking at a state that they describe as Alabama in between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. The rural part of Pennsylvania is probably as conservative maybe as Kentucky is. But Pittsburgh and Philadelphia dominate. Probably together, they're more than half of the vote, would be my guess. And so the problem really is if you want to win Pennsylvania, you know, try instead of getting 10 percent of the black vote, we need to get 20 or 25 percent. Now, it's easier said than done. We've been saying it forever. But I can give you an example. In our state, our attorney general is Republican, African-American. Our previous lieutenant governor, when we had a Republican governor, African-American, good friend of mine, she served in the military and also was uh, came out of the Tea Party. And I met at some of the first Tea Party movements. Uh, we had uh, several other candidates that were great candidates, all African-American, all running as Republican. You just have to keep doing that year in and year out till the African-American public says, well, these Republicans aren't too bad. Maybe I'll consider it. Right. But this isn't like a decades, white country club. We weren't even being considered. Say again. Yeah.
2: I said that they until they look at the party and say to themselves, OK, this no longer looks like a white country club. You know, you got people like you mentioned, Daniel Cameron, you got Winsome Sears, uh, Lieutenant Governor in Virginia yep. and so on. And the party is definitely becoming more diverse. There's no question about it. But, yeah, bigger numbers, especially now that they're losing so many white suburban uh, voters to the Dems. Um, let me ask you this because there's I'm not that interested in this, but I, I should spend a minute squabbling over leadership fight you know who should be in the leadership mcconnell should he be the leader of the minority now in the senate should kevin mccarthy be the leader over in the house um would you support mcconnell and do you support a vote before george is decided
0: um i think it's probably better to wait on the vote i think that uh we don't know who's going to be the senator from georgia but we also don't know who the senator is from alaska you know this is for the next Mm -hmm. session does the current senator from alaska she's probably going to win i think in the ranked choice but should she vote on the next one? I guess she doesn't get to vote now because she hasn't been declared the senator for January. But is that fair to her not to let her vote? Or is it fair to Herschel Walker just to say, Oh yeah, we really want you to win, but you don't get to vote on who the leader yeah. is. So I, I don't care it, what you it have to no say. Makes no sense to have the vote now, though they should definitely wait. Okay.
2: What about um Trump's gonna announce tonight, we expect. He certainly has given all indications. His tweet this morning has a picture of himself sort of leaping through the air with a Trump 2024. Uh, you know, moniker beneath it. Um, What do you think about Trump 2024? Is he the party's standard bearer still? And is this a good idea so soon in the process?
0: You know, I would prefer that it wait once again till after December 6th and that we concentrate on the seat in Georgia. And my fear is, is that by getting in now, it will appear to some people that it's all about him and not so much about you know, trying to win the Senate. So I think it would be better for him to wait till after December 6th. Um, as far as my decision, you know, I haven't decided whether I'm going to get involved in the Republican primary uh, prospects. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be personally involved as a candidate, but I don't think that uh, at this point I'm going to get involved too much because there's so many things. that You know, I just came from a meeting. We're talking about COVID origins. We really want to have some investigations. The House definitely will have it. I'm hoping the Senate, when they see the House move forward, will say, well, gosh, if the House is going to do it, maybe we should try a bipartisan investigation over here. They've Mm -hmm. stonewalled us for two years. But like I saw your interview the other day, it was one of the best ones I did. And I compliment you on this on uh, Bob Gary and uh you know, I think uh the counterpart was Alina Chen, and that was yeah. just wonderful, incredibly informative. But uh the American public hasn't seen that, and we knew need to see this because the next virus that leaks from a lab could be much worse. And we are we are we have a death wish if we're gonna keep doing this research without any controls on it. And I had three doctors who came in recently, scientists all peer reviewed, many, many journal articles, and they all came to the same conclusion. This type of research needs to be treated as if it were a nuclear weapon. It needs to be controlled by an independent agency and tax dollars shouldn't be sent willy nilly to communist or totalitarian countries to do this type of research.
2: I'm I'm that's my biggest disappointment in seeing the GOP not take control of the Senate, is I really wanted to see you run those hearings. I mean, it could still happen, as you point out, but could it happen in the House alone? I feel less confident about how that will go, but could it? It's going to
0: happen in the House. Uh, you know, the the leaders over there are very much into it. And I know the two that will be prominent in this will be uh, Jim Jordan and Jamie Comer from my state. Uh, one, uh, Jim Jordan will be chairman of the judiciary and Jamie Comer will be chairman of oversight. And uh, I know they're very interested in this investigation. They want to get to the truth. You know, one, because we care about this happening again. It it isn't so much, you know, I think blame goes where it goes. But to me, this isn't so much the blame game. It's looking forward to saying the virus COVID-19 killed 0.3 percent. But that was still about a million people. But if we had a virus that killed 20 percent, that'd be 60 million people in our country. And there are viruses that they're experimenting on that can kill 20, maybe even 50 percent of the people and this is a this is a death wish for for civilization. That's why one of the scientists put this a death wish for civilization. And it absolutely has to come. And I, I am still trying with my Democrat colleagues here to get them to agree to a bipartisan uh, investigation. And it's not completely out of the question. And maybe they'll see it going on in the House and say, well, gosh, we don't want just the Republicans to investigate it. Maybe we will have a bipartisan investigation in the, in the Senate
2: what what are they so afraid of why on earth wouldn't they do it um, lastly i know you're short on time but i have to ask you about nancy pelosi whose husband was attacked uh, a few weeks ago she came out and spoke about it for the first time on the sunday shows and really took aim at disrespectful republicans because she did not like the way some were speaking about the attack here's a little bit of that sot 3 but
0: it wasn't just the attack it was the republican reaction to it, which was disgraceful. But that trauma is intensified by the ridiculous, disrespectful attitude that the Republicans and there's no nobody disassociating themselves from the horrible response that they gave to it. Well, you would think that there would be some level of responsibility, but, 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 but you, you see what the reaction is on the other side to
2: this, to make a joke of it. So she didn't much appreciate people saying anything other than I'm so, so sorry for what happened to your husband. I know you were on the receiving end of a vicious attack that punctured your lung. You had six ribs broken when somebody, a neighbor, ran down a hill and slammed into you. You had your earbuds in, you you didn't see him. You didn't hear him coming. And um, I wonder if you received above board treatment of the kind she's demanding from Nancy Pelosi's own family at the time.
0: You know, I rarely agree with Nancy Pelosi on anything, but on this I do. I think some of the accounts of her husband were despicable, and uh, I had a great deal of sympathy for him and his injuries. I was struck once in the back so hard that six ribs were broken. Three of them were completely separated. We're not talking about cracked ribs. We're talking about broken in half, where the ends rubbed upon each other until they could finally heal months later. Um, Lung was damaged. I coughed up blood for a year and a half. I finally had part of my lung removed. And so uh, the left wing media thought was hilarious, including Nancy Pelosi's daughter, who basically tweeted out that my neighbor was her hero. My political opponent this time around, we crushed him in the election, um, but I wouldn't debate him because he actually put an ad out mocking it and celebrating the attack on me. So, no, the left wing uh, MSNBC anchors laughed on air and said it was the funniest story of the year for them. And so, no, I I went through a terrible amount of pain. I still have health issues related to this and no sympathy, not only no sympathy, but mocking and still to this day, people who worked for my opponent Call, calling the person who attacked me their hero everyday online mm-hmm. this so i don't like what they did to paul pelosi but i think nancy needs to talk to her daughter i mean her daughter's part of the same kind of crazy left wing anger there's crazy right wing anger and uh, paul paul pelosi deserves nothing but our sympathy he's just an innocent man who was uh, uh, attacked and i think we should have nothing but sympathy or empathy for that
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. And you've said that before. It's crazy. Even now, uh, Anna Navarro over on The View sends out some message su- suggesting oh, some GOPers like McConnell and Romney condemned the attack on Paul Pelosi. Most remain silent. Others made jokes. Others suggested the attacker be released. And then others tried to score points by comparing to Rand Paul getting decked by his neighbor. This from the party of Christian values. I know your wife, Kelly, of whom I am a fan, uh, tweeted out what exactly this felon did when he attacked you and said um, this guy had violent anti-Trump social media, yet you belittle his violence because you don't like Rand. I mean, the double standard is pretty galling. It's got to hurt in a few different ways for you and your family.
0: Yeah. Um, Anna is a, you know, she's, a, she's a, a comedy and, uh, nothing, nothing about her is serious or should be taken seriously. She's, uh, not a Republican, not a conservative. And it's just a farce to have her on the air claiming to represent that she's in any way Republican. But, uh, she's not very insightful either. She, uh, we were on one time with the show and we were talking about my book, The Case Against Socialism, that my wife and I wrote together. And in the book, One of the themes is basically that there isn't a kinder, gentler, nice sort of socialism that they tend to go hand in hand with state-sponsored violence. And I was talking about Maduro and Chavez in Venezuela, and uh, she's yelling at me on the couch saying, I was saying that they were socialists. And she was like, no, no, they're murderers and thugs. And I said, precisely, they're socialists (laughs) and murderers and thugs. That's the theme of the book. You just don't get it. But she wants them to be just evil people. So people want Hitler to be evil what he was, but they don't want to acknowledge that he was a socialist. Or they want to say, well, yeah, Stalin was evil, but they don't want to acknowledge that he was a socialist or Pol Pot or Mao. So the consistent theme with all these people is evil, but it's also socialism. And uh, this is the kind of subtlety that Anna Navarro is not capable of. But, uh, you know, I think her, her form of buffoonery, I guess it appropriately is on a, a show featuring buffoonery.
2: Mm. Senator Paul, always a pleasure talking to you. We'll definitely be watching what your next move is and uh, what your your colleagues over there in the House are going to do when and if they do take control of the gavel. All the best. Thanks, Megan. Coming up, a deep dive into the crazy FTX story. Do you understand it? We're going to help you understand it. And we're going to explain exactly why it has such far reaching implications into the Democratic Party. Think they're giving the money back? If you have not heard the name Sam Bankman Fried before, or SBF, you're about to learn a whole lot more about him, whether you listen to this program or you don't, because his name is everywhere and it's going to be for quite some time. He is a multi billionaire at just 30 years old, reportedly, thanks to cryptocurrency. And he has been a mega donor for the Democrats, a funder of left leaning media outlets, and the major lobbyist in DC for the industry he represents. And now, Over the past week, it all came crashing down and there are major questions to be answered about how this happened. Jeffrey Tucker is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute and knows the crypto industry very well. He joins me now. Jeffrey, welcome to the show.
3: It's so nice to see you, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope you're right that this becomes a big source of controversy. I'm not very optimistic based on the New York Times article this morning, but.
2: Well, right. We'll get to that, too. But uh, it's going to be tough because, I mean, it's just such a a colossal failure and implosion that it's going to be tough to ignore, at least the financial papers, but beyond. And um, okay, so this guy, SBF, he's 30 years old and he starts he went to MIT. He's the son of two Stanford Professors. Um, he goes to MIT, gets out of MIT. He works for a traditional firm, as I understand it, for four years or so, and then decides at the age of 26, he's going to get into the crypto business. And, and what is his crypto business and what made it different from the other crypto businesses?
3: Well, there were many exchanges in the U.S. now. I mean, there's Gemini, there's Coinbase, there's very, very many uh, legitimate uh, crypto exchanges out there. But he decided that he 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 was smarter and fancier than the rest of them, and he would he would uh, take on the industry uh, in 2019 and started FTX and just strangely out of nowhere, he he kind of rocketed up and it per- passed up the market capitalization of all of his competitors, and it's there's something very funny about it. And he did all the fashionable things, right? He talked a different game from, say, the Winklevoss twins, or you know, the head of uh, uh, Coinbase, or the rest of the industry. He was all about marketing himself as a socially conscious uh, a business person, so to speak. So it was all about ESG and DEI, or what he called effective altruism. So, he, and also. Uh, playing well with the regulators. So he became a big Washington presence and then pushed all the other buttons, right? It was big advertising. He bought a, 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 a stadium, the FTX stadium in, in Miami, you know, hired uh, fancy stars, you know, Katy Perry, uh, you know, Tom the Super Brady, Bowl with Giselle, Larry, yeah Tom Larry Brady David. and that Larry David. So, you know, you had all these buttons being pushed. I tell you, there's, there's other funny things about him um he became a sort of a cartoon style, style caricature of these these sort of youthful seeming geniuses that have become to come to be valorized over the last 10 years almost just inhabiting an archetype you know with the with the leg twitch and the disheveled mm-hmm. look and unwilling to uh wear anything but cargo shorts and and t-shirts and and sneakers and uh you know had the the, the look of somebody who just guzzled sodas all day you know he had that you know, and the MIT thing and, you know, this sort of uh, this structured really to get rid of incredulity that would normally affect venture capitalists. He pushed all the buttons and so celebrated as the next JP Morgan, the world's first trillionaire. And adoring media interviews oh, saying, tell us, about, I mean, tell us about your philosophy. What, Why is it that you want to be so rich? And he right. says, well, you know my philosophy. <laughs> Just um, as great as is, you think you is, are. Is,
2: explain why you're even greater.
3: Right. <laughs> my philosophy is that you should become rich so that you can give your money away to good causes. Really? That's amazing. You don't need the the money. Oh, not for me, you know. Well, you don't drive a Lamborghini. Oh no, no, no! I drive a, a Camry. It's right over here. Have a look at it. Of course, the off camera was his forty million dollar, you know, estate in and the Bahamas. You know, so I know. We the, have, I really- think
2: I know the place that he was staying in the Bahamas because I recognize the building from. The television. We've we've gone vacation on vacation there. I think it's the Albany Resort uh, down yeah. in the Bahamas, and it's a very swanky place that Tiger Woods and others have invested in. And we've never stayed in that place that he's in because it's ridiculously expensive. Like we we could never afford to be there. It's right yeah. in the marina, looking at all the yachts. And so yeah, his little humble Toyota Camry story is a lie too. Um, but Ugh. let me just back up for people who don't follow it, like I don't. Um, the exchange when you say he started the FTS exchange that's that's a place where people who want to buy and trade in crypto can do it you you can do it on an exchange so if you want to invest in you know bitcoin you might buy it on his ftx exchange correct
3: yeah that's right so uh, the crypto ecosystem is self contained you know once you get on the blockchain you can move money here all these coins are fungible with each other you can do it all from your cell phone uh, or store all your assets in a in a in a in a cold wallet, you know, on a treasure wallet. You know, you don't need these exchanges where you need them is for the on ramps and the off ramps. So if you're moving dollars to crypto, you need somebody to make the exchange for you. Uh, if you want to convert your crypto back into dollars, you need somebody to do that too. Mm. Um, so exchanges have always been part of the industry. Uh, back before 2013, there were. Anybody could run an exchange, you know, because it was kind of a wild west. I actually liked it better. But then the U.S. Treasury said, if you're going to run an exchange, you have to register as a money exchange, same as any, any business. And that means registering in every state, which means you're going to spend six figures. You're going to comply with thousands of pages of of stuff and so on. So the the industry actually became just a few dominant players, you know, after that, Uh, they're, they're good people and they are running a legitimate business, you know, from Coinbase to Gemini. I mean, you need these services to, to buy. And what you do with the exchange, you just link them up to your bank account and, and buy and sell crypto as you see fit. A lot of people, Uh, use them to custody their assets and and play play games right trading Mm -hmm. this trading that Uh, and you know how it is the same as with the stock market when the market's going up everybody's a genius you know yeah that's right
2: (laughs) and that's right so he not only had ftx the exchange But he had FTT. He created his own Bitcoin or like sort of um, cryptocurrency, FTT. So he's like, this is great. I'll run the exchange and then I'll have my own coin, too, that people can buy. And then he had this company, Alameda. I guess, which is more, it's like the, is it like a JP Morgan? Is it like a Goldman Sachs? Is it like a, hey, Megan, you want to invest in crypto? We'll advise you. We'll do it for you. We'll probably use the FTX exchange and buy the FTT coin, but Mm -hmm. we're just going to take this hassle off your hands.
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they engaged a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions. So Alameda Research was used for a lot of purposes and receiving funds manipulating funds, moving them in or out of the industry. Uh, uh, holding uh, a gigantic portion of FTT, and you know, you should be clear about these 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 tokens. You know, anybody can create a token of any name in about twenty seconds. I can make I can make a, a Megan Kelly while I'm talking to you right now. You know, and and so, but the value is zero until I market it, right? So until I can create a market for it. So uh, Alameda Research was considered to be a market maker in Wall Street terms. But I mean, what that meant was just a a sort of a a way to pump up the value of of FTT. So a lot of the danger of these institutions, they become these strange sort of perpetual motion machines, you know, well, my company is backed by my token. Well, what backs your, your token? Well, my company.
2: Yeah, Right. It's all very (laughs) incestuous. And he had this band of, you know, very sketchy characters helping him run these these corporations and these entities out of this Bahamian resort. They all looked like they were about 14. His ex-girlfriend, I guess, ran one of them was bragging about how she she's not good at math. She didn't know what she was doing. There was no stop loss program. And all of this is coming home to roost now. So while while the goose was looking good, everybody said they're all brilliant. This is amazing. They sleep on beanbags. How cool. And now the blooms coming off the rose as we realize what's really going on. So so how so. okay. so he starts FTX. He's he's good at sort of creating this weird image. As you said, he's sort of like he's right at a central casting for who the media loves to pump up. Like he's a little. I don't know if he's on the spectrum or what, but they like that. They they wow, promote okay. that the way he dresses to his little verbal and physical tics. And uh, the, since he'd come from MIT, I was at a legitimate bank for a while. I was like, oh, OK, he's got credentials, kind of like Madoff, Madoff, too. Right. He had good a good resume. Um, and so during the height of crypto, I guess he must have had some value to the company and started to parlay that into Dazzling things like having FTX on the name of the Miami Heat stadium and partnering with Tom Brady—all these things—and then more money came in, more money came in, and then we'll get to the collapse in a second. But then the media came in too, and the media had a big role in creating this guy's image. How so? Well, it
3: was the adoring interviews and 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 the fact that he sort of expressed all the fashionable values of of woke ideology. You know, I mean, he was a Uh, Really, a piece of work, and act. And it's funny because you know you can these days woke ideology. You can find and it's like it's like a can you open up and dump it out of the table, pick through it, right? So it's climate change, pandemic planning. uh, socially conscious D. investing, give it, giving away all your money. I mean, it's all these sort of buzzwords they use. None of it's really serious. But he really set out to say, look, I'm one of you. And then he backed it up with, with uh, lots of donations to the Democratic Party. So that so one of the things that's funny about the crypto world is every new token has to have a shtick, you know, a, a marketing gimmick. Well, his, his value added to the crypto world was basically woke ideology and all the fashionable causes social with him, uh, you know, among which uh, was this um, this uh, backing of, of of Ukraine and and the war with Russia, which we can get to in a minute. Right? That's mm-hmm. that's a, a strange thing, but that was his his value added. And then the media loving media interviews and and you would think that, as you mentioned earlier, that you know the the CEO of Alameda Research, for example, says, "Oh, you don't need anything other than." elementary school math, you know, to run this company. And she actually said this, right? Can't and, uh, but it just, it's so funny, isn't it? How dope. No, it's, it's funny, uh,
2: horrifying. Uh, so wait, well, a couple yeah. of soundbites that I want to get in here. First, here's a sound soundbite uh, with credit to Jesse Waters who turned me on to this as I watched his opening monologue last night. Um, This has got a little bit uh, from a YouTube uh, profile that was done on this guy, Sam, uh, saying, like, who is he? And here's just to color in the lines on this image that we've created for the audience. Here's a clip. Okay, the guy you you see next to me is the most generous billionaire in the world and I found him! Hi, my name is Sam and this is my story. Sam has
3: crazy hair. Sam is vegan. Sam sleeps 5 hours a night. Sam lives in the Bahamas with 10 roommates. Sam is 29 years old only. But Sam has 22
0: billion dollars.
2: And he wants
0: to donate all of it to
2: charity. Okay, so you can see where it's going, but now here, there. Watch this. This next clip of Sam talking about how he wants to fund Democrats, and you can see the leg twitch and the press building him up, and and why they fell in love with him because his messaging, as weird as the guy seems, was spot on. I think it's SOT eight. In the end, I want to do what's right for the country. You think every money you spend Chuck in politics Todd. should be disclosed publicly? Are you comfortable with that? If there was a norm where every dollar that ever in donated in mm-hmm. politics was to be disclosed publicly. Um, I would have a, a lot of sympathy for that. I think I might support it. I haven't thought carefully about it enough to know. But well, it I sounds so. like
3: what you're saying is maybe there's some donations that you have made that you wouldn't make if you knew they were going to be
2: immediately public. So I think I don't, I don't generally think about it that way. Okay, so the more he says he's going to donate, although he's like and and I want more and more disclosure, although I'm going to keep my company in the Bahamas where I don't have to follow all the same rules. Right. That's basically how it was going. But the numbers that he actually wound up giving to Democrats were staggering, have been I mean, up until last week, have been absolutely staggering.
3: Yeah, yeah, and 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 one of his his rackets was you know arguing for this regulation, the transparency, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, the, the and then buying off all the people who would be investigating him and otherwise looking carefully at his at at his business operations. So I, I read somebody said a couple of days ago, it was a great line that uh, he hoped to get, become a too big to jail, which I thought mm-hmm. was a, a very interesting phrase. I mean, it's it's sort of p- paying protection money for his his little uh, racket and the more money he gave away uh and and the more he engaged in the sort of marionette you know child genius routine uh the the less incredulous people were and the more people were celebrating him as as the world's most generous uh enlightened soul you know who understands things about crypto none of us understand who's just mm. making this this empire that's going to f- fund all you know dnc friendly charities you know, all over the country. And, you know, his brother even established a pandemic, uh, it's, called, it's called something like Fund Against Pandemics or Pandemic Planning Fund or something like that, uh, solely for the purpose of receiving uh, some of the $30 billion of the Biden administration had, had scheduled for, uh, for to fund pandemic planning. So every time you see Sam out there going on about the importance of preventing the next pandemic, you know, he's basically shilling for his, for his brother. And then, then you have his his mother, you know, who herself was a co co-fo- co founder of uh, Mind the Gap PAC, one of the largest uh, Democratic packs. So you you can see how he surrounded himself uh, with with all this protection, uh, all this, these these uh, protection rackets. And you mentioned the fact that he was in the Bahamas. Now that is a fascinating thing to me. Why would you be in the Bahamas as a crypto exchange? There are some regulations in the U.S. that you don't like and you would like to get rid of some regulations, some costs of doing business, some taxes. That's why you're in the Bahamas. I do find it really interesting that all the champions of all these hyper regulations of the crypto industry uh, s- suddenly became adoring worshipers of <laughs> Sam Bankman Freed, you know, even though he's in the Bahamas for a reason. I mean, why didn't Bill Clinton you know, why didn't something go off in his head? This guy may not be entirely on the up and up here. Right. I mean, he's operating What's he out to of the Bahamas. What? What's he trying to avoid? No, but they kept saying, "No, oh, this is entirely normal." Oh, lots of lots of great business people see the Bahamas as as a friendly place because you know the ocean views and <laughs> fancy houses, and that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, you know, you had every reason to suspect this guy was running a racket. Mm-hmm. Every reason, you know, three years to go from nothing to one of the you know, dominant ex- crypto exchanges in the world, Larry David chilling for you and buying stadiums in Miami it kept giving me a break. Yeah, I mean the, and you're worth you allegedly know, looking $32 back, billion. And And I have to tell you, Megan, like within the community of, of Bitcoin and related currencies and Ethereum and all the crypto-, crypto world, uh, people were very suspicious of this guy. And let's not forget that the you know the company that finally brought him down with a series of tweets was the CEO of Binance because they were involved with a deal. Either you know Binance was going to buy FTX or FTX was going to buy uh, 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 Binance. It would actually reverse order, and once they started doing due diligence. Uh, the CEO of, of Binance said, "You know, I'm very, I'm highly suspicious of this guy. I don't think that the numbers are really adding up. If I were you, I mean, the the subtext is, if I were you, I would watch your money carefully, have a look. Well, it turned out, of course, that his suspicions were exactly right. Uh, Sam had been using depositors' money in his exchange t- to uh, subsidize." his act, his emergence and acquisitions and activity that were being run by Alameda Research. So there was this deep relationship. Hold on.
2: Hold on one second, because I'm going to set that up for the audience. But before I go okay. there, I just want to give, give some of the um, some of the numbers he gave. Well, he said that he expected to give north of 100 million in the next presidential election uh, and that He had a soft ceiling of one billion with the spending likely to be on the higher end. If Trump runs again, he gave 10 million plus to back President Joe Biden in 2020. He uh, has hired a network of political operatives and spent tens of millions more shaping Democratic House primaries. Um, So I'm sure. You know, Tuesday was a complicated day for him because his company was being exposed as a fraud and yet all of these people who he had backed <laughs> were winning elections um, and he was ready to do it again. He had also backed a bunch of media companies uh, through the brother and the pandemic thing was a huge thing thanks to the brother Gabe who was going to run all that. But he was also putting a bunch of dough into companies like Vox, The Intercept, ProPublica, the Law and Justice Journalism Project, and um most recently, Semaphore, which is that's that's the Ben Smith organization, right? Um, in any event, from the formerly of The New York Times. So he put a bunch of money in all these left leaning, you know, they, some would take issue with that. But yeah, uh, organizations and in, and many of them then went on to cover him very favorably or got the money right mm-hmm. after they did a favorable piece on him. So you can see mm-hmm. how the influence game works.
3: You sure can, and I do find the timing interesting, right? So we went right through the midterms, and you know what is it? Was Forty-eight hours later, uh, uh, just a, just a few days later, the the whole funding machinery of the of the Democratic uh, Party and all the associated media uh, companies that have been engaged in censorship and partisanship, you know, all along, uh, it, the whole thing just falls apart. You know, just very conveniently a few days after the midterms, that he basically funded through his magic bean company in the bahamas right. i mean there's a, there's a lot of very strange things going on here i would say yeah now, maybe yeah, it's just I... a, co- a complete coincidence of the timing but uh, uh you know you've got you've got major distortions of uh p- political decisions that the american people are engaged in uh you, you know use with thanks to hundreds of millions of dollars of f- fake money and phony companies and fraudulent activities and ponzi schemes it you know, yeah, you know you think about it how much how much trouble did trump go through on the russian investigation to find out how much interference was there well we should have at least that much you know s- sort of focus and an intrepid concern for what happened and the relationship here between ftx and and the midterm elections that just took place and the entire yeah. machinery behind it you know i well, what's, what's going to
2: happen with that 10 million dollars is joe biden going to give that back his campaign used it he won the presidency now you've got right. a lot of investors who are going to be hurt as a result of this guy not having the actual money so does he give it back or do these democratic politicians give back the money
3: i um, clearly not right i mean it's already spent i mean they're you know yeah. they're busy paying off their debts and, and so on so the money's the money's been banked uh, and I, I don't know. You know, one really does wonder. And so I, I hope we get some investigations. Like, you know, a close look. I'm sure the books are a mess, if there are any. Uh, and and <laughs> by the and math his, scholar, his,
2: his,
3: right? Yeah, right. And and the elementary uh, school uh, education, you know, uh, of mm-hmm. the CEO there. So maybe there were no bo- no books at all, and maybe the whole thing was just intended to come and go in three years. I don't know. I. You know i i have no proof of that statement but but you know the ftx was founded just right after uh, biden declared in 2019 and in three years and i have i have people who've been in this industry a very long time they work very hard to build up company they they keep clean books they comply with all the regulations they're serving their customers very faithfully uh, they do a proper marketing they the, you know they they have a good relationship with their customers and this punk shows up out of nowhere with all the right connections and loving media uh coverage of his uh eventual trillionaire status the new Warren Buffett the JP Morgan the God knows what else they called him and he gives it all you know gives away vast amounts of money i mean second only to soros to the uh, to the democratic party and and the media Covering uh, the elections, it's all really interesting, and Megan, I'm sure you have seen this before, but it, it shows you just how how dopey people can become when mm. when they believe that there's a magic money tree out there and that they're going to mm-hmm. be able to uh, pluck the leaves off of it at will and that's, that's why he got a free pass
2: instead of using his MIT education and his obviously brilliant mind to create something that was actually of value, he used it to pay off the relevant people who would expose his fraud. I mean, that's that's how he used his brilliance. And it it was a smart Mm -hmm. move. The the party in power, which he had a hand in putting in power, the media who would expose and cover him. And they went along like lapdogs. I mean, even today, I know this is one of the things that's concerning you. Even today, today, post- The Chapter 11 filing, which was Friday, and he's now been exposed as you know, there's nothing there. People bought a pig in a poke there. They did a fawning piece on, on him in The New York Times, which The Times critics are talking about as if they wrote something to the equivalent of Bernie Madoff. Well, he made a couple of bad investments, but his heart was in the right place
3: that was what the story said. I read it this morning. I nearly fell out of my chair when I read that. How can you do this? Did you cover Elizabeth Holmes this way? Bernie Madoff? I mean, come on. This is this is a scam. This is this guy was running a Ponzi scheme and robbing people all over the place. Instead, the New York Times says, well, you know, it's been a tough time in the crypto world. And his company was so so successful. It, just, it almost like it got ahead of him. You know, and nobody expects that kind of success that fast. And uh. maybe he just wasn't quite ready for it. But fortunately for him, he's getting a lot of sleep and and thinking through things (laughs) guys are you serious this is the new york times you know it's unbelievable Mm -hmm. it's unbelievable now and you know this and i do too uh the new york times is a foreshadowing it's it's like a messaging system for a whole network of media this is how we're going to speak about this Mm -hmm. issue people Mm -hmm. you want a career in journalism do what we do yeah. And so it's it's a signal to the whole media now, uh, to to cover the FTX scandal, which is a scandal for our age, and it may just be be beginning. By the way, I mean this could just you know this this the failure of FTX, it could be the Lehman Brothers uh, of our time, you know, as it was wow. in two thousand eight. I mean there there could be a lot of things that are going to unravel from this. And we can talk about that too. Yeah. So the media needs to be all over this. And this is a scandal for the ages. You know, this is like you and can't it's a real scandal. Bernie
2: Madoff. You can't ignore it, but it's a it's a story whether you like it or not, whether you covered it right in the first instance or not. Everyone needs to get on board and correct their past sins. Yes, I want to go over how the implosion took place with Alameda and how that like because it, it relates to what's happened in the crypto market over the past year. And um and just how bad it is, because I heard Charles Payne on Fox News say yesterday, this is Enron times two. Enron Mm. times two is a phrase nobody wants to hear. You know, I mean, that was such a colossal Mm -hmm. implosion. They brought down Mm -hmm. Arthur Anderson, one of the top six accounting firms in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, when they went down because they weren't looking over the books. I don't know whether anybody looks over the books in in crypto, but all things that I want to get to could could you stay over? Could I could I hold you over? Yeah, sure. Um, sure, um, We need
3: to talk about this.
2: Yeah. I I feel like we only booked you until like right now, but I need you to stay a little longer and um, we'll do that. We'll we'll keep Jeffrey here and we'll we'll uh, pick it up on the opposite side of this break. It's such a pleasure talking with Jeffrey Tucker. And don't forget, folks, that you can find this show, The Megyn Kelly Show, live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east and the full video show and clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel youtube.com slash Megan Kelly. If you prefer your, your news via audio, like an audio podcast, you can go ahead and follow and set download Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. There you find our full archives with more than 430 shows. And in the meantime, if you're a podcast lover, you should know that I not only am I no longer the only podcaster in the family. I don't, I don't think I'm even in the number one spot. Doug Brunt, my husband is on fire with his new podcast. I'm getting so many nice compliments from his fans on it. I want to share it with you. It's called Dedicated. Dedicated with Doug Brunt. He opens up the cocktail. He sits down with these well-known authors and he talks about their writing process, their biggest busts, um, how they came up with the ideas, their book to movie rights. Uh, He asked Lee Child, who he had in mind when he wrote Jack Reacher. It was not Tom Cruise. Uh, So you'll find out who it was. All sorts of fun things. He has Jess Walter just out and That is he wrote Beautiful Ruins, among many others. One of the great things about I'm loving about the podcast is writers are great with words. And you listen to Jess Walters talk about something as simple as how he loves his favorite cocktail. And suddenly you're transported to a better place. Anyway, you'll love it. Check it out. Dedicated with Doug Brown. Jeffrey Tucker of the Brownstone Institute is still with me talking FTX and its founder SBF Sam Bankman-Fried the guy who is the son of two Stanford professors who uh, are totally donated to left-wing causes as it turns out is their son and he pumped some 40 million dollars into the last into this election cycle not counting the 10 million he gave to Joe Biden in 2020 and uh, and the rest and as i told you he was aiming to do between 100 million and one billion in the coming election. So um, that's the guy who has now fallen, totally imploded as a fawning media and industry experts just continue to look the other way, just continue to look the other way. Um, Now, we mentioned Madoff, and this does feel very much like a Ponzi scheme. Uh, Our producer, our executive producer found a clip of Sam speaking uh, in front. Let's see, is this? I don't know who he's talking to, but he's He's speaking to okay CNN in July, and he's talking about Ponzi schemes. This very man listen to Sat 11, because I think that
3: when you have something which is basically an empty product, which I do think is true of some places, um,
2: you know, some some assets in crypto, uh, you know, that is something where there's certainly real crash potential, uh, from it, and where there's a lot less utility being brought by it, a- and so I think that's you know a much less healthy. Um, you know, piece of the ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, a real crash could be possible. And that's what he yeah. just went through. So let's just yeah. let's talk about how it was exposed and how it came crumbling down. You mentioned right. a rival of his called Binance. And uh-huh. as I understand it, he, Sam, FTX, was thinking about buying Binance, which is uh-huh. very that's ballsy. And uh, then, as it turns out, he didn't have the money to do that. And then Binance, which was a rival, too, was looking at buying FTX. And this is where things started to fall apart for FTX. How so?
3: Well, uh, so let's just be clear that this scam could have gone on forever if the prices had just risen and risen and risen, right? I mean, this is just like the Madoff thing. If there's ever more money pouring into the Ponzi scheme, it can go on in perpetuity. And in fact, Madoff lasted for, what, two decades or something like that. Um, uh, the it was the housing thing. crash that
2: brought Madoff down.
3: Yeah. So, FTX uh, was f- faced a lot of pressure this year in 2022 when the, uh, the crypto sector began to kind of fall apart in light of Jerome Powell's dramatic changes in the federal funds rate. Right? So, we're tightening money. We're trying to crush this inflation thing. And what people didn't really entirely understand, which is now uh, more and more obvious, is that we've been living in an era for 14 years of relatively cheap money, right? I mean, so we've had zero interest rate policies. When inflation came along, uh, uh, interest rates turned dramatically negative. That means that you can't make money by saving in the old-fashioned way. Instead, you have a lot of money chasing return anywhere and everywhere. Over 14 years, that's included a lot of things, you know, financial markets, of course. Big tech companies got levered up. Uh, students you know, took on you know tons of of st- student debt to get their credentials so they could get you know cushy six figure jobs, uh, all of which are being eliminated now from uh, many many companies. But one of the sectors to really benefit from this era of cheap money was the crypto sector, right? And we like to think that crypto was somehow uh, had an immaculate conception in two thousand nine. Um, and lived exogenously from financial markets, and that may have been true for the first, you know, three, four, five years. But in the meantime, once it became fashionable, it just became yet another place to dump a lot of money that benefited from the cheap money policies from that Ben Bernanke started in 2008. So when Jerome Powell started tightening uh, rates, and he wants to get them into the positive care, Well, let me just back up slightly. After the pandemic hit. The Fed was always trying to tighten. But then he got talked into, once again, going to the floor and uh, zero interest rates policy starting in the middle of March 2020. That worked fine for about the first year until the inevitable inflation began. Because unlike Bernanke, who put all the fresh money into, into the vaults of the Fed, uh, the policy of the U.S. Congress was to distribute it widely as if from a helicopter, right? So we had some $6 trillion printed over the course of, you know, 18 months that just was dropped into everybody's bank accounts as well. Well, remember, well, that fueled inflation, got very high, it really started squeezing uh, business margins and uh, really lowering real wages and creating a very close to being a crisis kind of a situation, Jerome Powell did not want his legacy to go down as creating the greatest inflation in America you know, in 40 years for, and destroying the domestic value of the dollar in terms of goods and services, would rather be known as the only uh, truly heroic Fed governor in the post-war period, uh, which is Paul Volcker. So he set out to crush this inflation by tightening money and, and, and getting to a terminal rate of interest that's positive and restoring some, some, some sanity to the system. So, but that with that came uh, the end uh, this year of this sort of wild scramble for return. uh,
2: And is this this one of the reasons why, if I bought Bitcoin a year ago, it was at something like 54,000 for one? And now I'm told it's more like 14,000 a year later.
3: Yeah, it's it really it's it's experienced a seventy five percent crash in value, which we've seen before in the space. You know, and everybody in it should be aware that that's how volatile it is. But I think what's what's important here is that we've seen crypto really benefit from the loose money, especially in, in and twenty twenty is not a coincidence that we peaked at sixty five thousand dollars. You know, which proved to be utterly unsustainable, and now we're in the fifteen thousand dollar range, uh, and everybody's panicked about a, a, a return to ten thousand dollars and. And, and lower and that's in and what is the most reputable uh, token but you know you've got twenty thousand listed tokens out there wow. and most of them are just are just going to uh, vanish into thin air. all right know, and this is and, one of them so
2: ftt is his token and it yeah. trades on ftx his exchange and it's helped along by his market maker alameda and they like everybody else were affected by this dynamic that you're just Discussing. It's been a that's very right. rough year for crypto, all crypto. Oh, that's right. But it's he,
3: been a rough year for everybody seen, in this industry.
2: Yeah, yeah. But he was seen as sort of a golden boy still in this time. And he started buying up distressed firms that were going down left and right during the past 12 months. But let's advance the discussion because I want to get to a couple other points before I have to let you go. So he gets into this thing with Binance. Turns out Binance starts kicking his tires. All right, maybe I'll buy you. Let me take a look. It doesn't go well. And then the head of Binance takes to Twitter. And what, why why did he do does he hate SPF like why did he do that?
3: Well there certainly are competitors but you know when, when you've got a whole industry that lives off confidence it's devastating to undermine it so you got you know FTX got tested with some uh, uh, withdrawals the crypto equivalent of a bank run which we've seen time and again and once that starts, it's hard to stop it's just like it's mm-hmm. all a wonderful life you know in the famous scene right? <laughs> so, people panic. I want my money back right <laughs>
2: yeah the guy from binance and, saying bad things about st uh, whatever this co- company and i want my coin i want my money
3: right which would be fine if he had kept full reserves like any reputable crypto exchange would do. In fact, all the exchanges have sent out, you know, big notes to all the customers, just to be clear, we're keeping full reserves around here. We have your money. We're the custodian of your money. If you want it back, we'll give it back to you. We hope you don't, but you know, if you withdraw your funds, it's not going to make us illiquid. It's not going to make us go under, okay? We're a full reserve bank uh exchange. Well, he was using depositor money. Uh, and converting it to FTTs, shoving it over to Alameda Research, would served two purposes. One was to pump up the value of FTT uh, and and move it and in a way that was sort of surreptitious or whatever. And then and then Alameda Research was able to and get this. This is where it gets really weird. Should, you shouldn't have 29-year-olds in this kind of world. It's just crazy. What they started doing, once these exchanges around the country and the world were starting to fail in light of the lower prices for for crypto market in general, he thought the way to fix this was to buy up a bunch of companies, which he did with Alameda Research. He kept acquiring more and more companies. Now, initially, that looked like, wow, this genius, my goodness, he's just gobbling up companies left and right. You know, this guy is just liquid, uh, like you can't can't believe. And then he gave interviews about that. Why are you doing this, uh, Stan? Well, I'm doing it because I feel a moral obligation to this community you know, we just can't abandon our friends in times of need. So uh, this is, for me, another example of my effective altruism at work oh wow you just amaze us with your virtues it just never never there's no end to the depth of your of your virtue and your socially conscious investing that's great well what he was actually doing was trying to first fall the inevitable right he was trying to he was trying to perpetuate the con game in light of these of, of the tighter money money and the the collapse of the industry in, in general
2: yeah, or maybe he was just trying to put air.
3: it off into maybe he was trying to put it off to the end of the midterms i don't know What was he doing? Look, the end was nigh already months ago, uh, six months ago. So he just wanted to squander as much money as possible and get it out there and keep the. And he didn't have the
2: pot of money. Like he, when when there was a run on the bank, effectively, he did not have the pot of money to give to the investors. He'd been spending it over at Alameda to keep that afloat. And this is a no no. This is a hard and fast legal no no. Like you're going to go to jail for doing that kind of shit. No no. And this is what he's dealing with right now, where he absolutely could be facing some very serious criminal charges. It's well beyond the collapse of his company. At this
3: point. Yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm actually skeptical of this. The New York Times article this morning really rattled me because I'm afraid that his too big to jail uh, scheme might actually work. So, you know, I'm glad you're on the case. There are a lot of people that are on the case, a lot of uh, independent journalists on Twitter are on the case, and are discussing the details of this, because God knows you can't depend on the mainstream media at this point. I'm mm-hmm. so sorry to say that. The Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal actually has, has run some pretty good stuff. But the New York Times, if that's the signal of how uh, we're going to treat this situation. It's going to be like child genius, you know, uh, business gets ahead of them. Sometimes Disstepped, people right, are grew too, too fast. successful, too successful. You know, sometimes oh, be, sometimes so, people be, are too too smart for this but, world. <laughs>
2: but the media has a couple of reasons to do this. Not, not only did they cover for him and not ask the right questions when he was growing r- weirdly quickly, um, they love him because he's this altruistic guy, in their view, who's helping a bunch of Democrats get elected in this midterm cycle and Joe Biden last time around and clearly hates Trump checking all boxes. Um, But on top of that, there appears to be some sort of relationship with Ukraine that you referenced 20 minutes ago that they would also Mm. approve of. And now I've looked at this six different ways, and this is how I short formed it for myself. Right. Okay. The United States gives money to Ukraine. Check. Ukraine. Then invest money in FTX. They have a crypto donations partnership with FTX. I mean, of all the companies and all the things that you can invest in, Ukraine has chosen FTX, this huge Democrat donor. Then FTX, as I mentioned, gives a bunch of money, 40 million this past cycle, to Democrats. Where did that money originate from? Well, yes, money's fungible, but I'm just saying, like, originally, it seems like a lot of that Ukrainian money came from us. Went through FTX and wound up in the pocket of these Democrats, who then vote for more aid to go to Ukraine, and uh, who then gets more money from us again. And round and round and round it goes. Which you know, most of the media is very pro this intervention in Ukraine, and they. This is yet another reason why they may very well want to look the other way. Have I? I realize I've gone down one oh one on the Ukraine relationship, but is have I summarized correctly what's being done?
3: I listened to you very carefully, Megan, as far as I know, everything you said is true. And the only question is, you know, was this purely a coincidence, purely an accident, or was it a a well-thought-out money laundering scheme? And um, that, I think, is the critical question. We've seen this in the past. You know, I'm... I'm old enough to remember the Iran Contra scandal in the 1980s, which, you know, was under investigation for nearly two years uh, because the Reagan administration wanted to get money to the Contras and this was the, and Congress wouldn't allocate it. So this is the way they did it. All right. So that's, it was, it was messy and it was scandalous. But this is next level stuff. You know, if you're, you're going to be, giving aid to Ukraine Ukraine deposits the money in FTX of all the places in the world and then FTX gives the money back again to uh, uh, media sources that support the Democrats and direct candidates with with uh, uh, that are that are favored by the DNC and the Democrats and that whole the whole machinery it all looks really really weird and you know you th- you talk about election interference you know I mean presumably we care about that stuff mm-hmm. uh we need some very careful looks into this i was very pleased yeah. that uh and and by the way again that's why i listen to you very carefully the, nothing you said is a conspiracy theory everything you no. said was true so and happened. money is <laughs> yeah and and money is fungible right i mean so by that, I mean, the dollar here is a the dollar there. So the Ukrainian government's getting money. They're depositing it with FTX. FTX feeds it to uh, uh, Democratic uh, ca- candidates and 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 causes, you know, among which, as we mentioned earlier, his brother with the pandemic fund, which it's, itself had been endorsed by many Democratic candidates and they'd brag about it on their site. So, you know, we're talking about a real money machine here. And would they... Re- I don't know. It's just bizarre. Would they have resorted to something uh, this sketchy, this shady? Well, the stakes are pretty high, you know?
2: Well, I'll tell you, um, one of the independent journalists you mentioned, I think, is Alex Berenson. He's coming on the show tomorrow. He used to write for The New York Times. And now they hate him because he pushed back on all the COVID overreaches. Uh, But he Mm -hmm. tweeted out the following. Everyone should understand already that Sam Bankman-Fried was far more dangerous than Bernie Madoff. Madoff mostly avoided small investors and picked up marks through word of mouth. SBF's company ran a Super Bowl ad, the definition of chasing retail money. Sam Bankman-Fried is about to become a litmus test for the elite media. Will they investigate him half as hard as they chase Bernie Madoff? Parenthetical, I was on the New York Times team on Madoff. I know we went hard. Or will SBF's story, like the lab leak, become too ugly to Democrats to be pursued? Mm, mm. grandson is
3: so he's so insightful and uh, he's a good one to follow because uh, he just has he has a nose for these things and he mm. and he has a tendency to tell the truth as as far as he knows it. I'm so grateful that we live in a time where, where people like him can have a platform because that God knows at this point we can't trust the new york times to run this down and yeah well uh, what about I, that I comment hope.
2: about the madoff comparison that madoff madoff made it so that people would come to him begging to invest their pension yeah. fund that they but this individual investor thing this you know using tom brady using larry david at the super bowl yeah. th- these kinds of ways of getting into the the pockets of small investors mm-hmm. who it tends to be younger investors sometimes in right. crypto i don't i don't know exactly who the That's victims right. are but what about That's that? right.
3: I, I, it's it's a really interesting distinction because there was a lot of winking and nudging going on with the Madoff thing for years. You know, twenty years. I and mean, people knew that. Well, this it's a little strange that he's gu- guaranteed a nine percent return whether the markets are up or down. But you know, he seems to know what he's doing. He's well connected. He's a former SEC uh, chairman guy. You know, he's well connected in the industry. He surely knows what he's doing. But yeah, he didn't pick on small investors. You couldn't get in to Madoff's stuff without you know millions to throw around. Okay, so it's 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 bad. It's criminal. It's rotten. But but you're right. It wasn't anybody. No normal person suspected that FTX was uh, was was a scam. They didn't suspect that it was it was a racket. And it it, it it's made everybody in the industry. You know, we're, we have a lot of scrupulous people, legitimate businesses that are doing legitimate work, trying to reach customers, custody of their money, provide services to people. That this scam artist came along and marketed it to to so many, so many people in these populist ways with easy interfaces. Oh, just put your bank account in here, buy a bunch of crypto, uh, get it back anytime. Watch it go up and up and up forever. So he's like Tom he's Brady, a, a real robber. Mm, yeah right. a real uh, a real and, scam artist, and i you know you have to you know, but we should also be angry at you know the, look at all the v c investors I noticed this morning that they're all talking about suing him well, look uh <laughs> for what i mean why didn't you recognize that this inarticulate uh, silly man uh you know uh, over you, know, you had no standards whatsoever i mean, mm-hmm. people would get on zoom calls with a guy and he would babble a bunch of inanities, and it's about that of a great man. This, let's just sign over a lot of VC funding to that company. Well, I, mean, I will really say this is where the media future. comes
2: in, too. This is where the media comes in. Like, yeah. like, usually these people get exposed because some, some savvy media journalist who follows the industry, like Theranos, hello, this is what happened there, gets a right. hold of the story, right. starts digging deeper, and has the freedom to do an expose, which raises the alarm. But the media fell down on this one. All the pieces about this guy are fawning about his stupid car and his beanbag. So, you know, in their defense, it, it, everyone so should have been, been paying more attention.
3: It's 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 such it discredits in many ways, uh, I would say, just the left in general, because, you know, is it really enough just a virtue signal and to, to, to just say the word climate change over and over again and pandemic planning and socially conscious investing and and effective altruism? You just mutter a bunch of cliches connected with the right crowd. Just send a bunch of signals, and then, then, then you can you can depend on on a, on a vast machinery out there to cover for you, and to apologize for you, and to and to celebrate you, you know, and to valorize you. Is that mm-hmm. really how disconnected we've become from reality? Is it all these days entirely about symbolism? And I guess that gets back to my point about the cheap money. In an age of cheap money, you know, zero percent interest rates for fourteen years—that's the habit we got into in this country. Instead of looking at values uh you know real economic value at profit and loss at return open books. so
2: old-fashioned uh, so, jeffrey so, so such know, an old-fashioned concept all right, right? Listen, i gotta instead, wrap it up but i think you raise a good theory. point about what now this is such a big force in the crypto market where does it go and only time's going to tell the are will there be criminal charges will the media do its job And how many others are going to follow if this has a domino effect on the industry? All questions we will take up as the story unfolds. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much.
3: Such a pleasure to be with you, Megan. Thank you.
2: Uh, Likewise. All right. Coming up next, a deep dive into the decline of men in the workforce with some alarming numbers. Now we're switching gears and turning to a topic that desperately needs more attention. It's a topic our friend Mike Rowe discussed with us last time he was on the show, the disappearance of men from the workforce in America. Today, over 7 million men of prime working age are neither working nor looking for work. This is bad for those individual men and for us as a society. Here to discuss it is the author of Men Without Work, Nick Eberstadt. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So define how bad the problem is right now.
1: Well, look at it this way. Um, We can do a work rate, an employment rate for the prime age men. If you take a look at last month's numbers, they're lower than they were in 1940 at the tail end of the Great Depression. Mm. So we really do have a depression scale problem for work for men in the United States. If you look at the 21st century as a whole, uh, the work rate for prime age men is actually substantially lower than it was in 1940. So we've basically got a 1937 scale. Uh, work crisis for men in America. And we're missing it because we only look at the unemployment rate and at the number of people employed. We forget to look at the numbers for people who are neither working nor looking for work. For every guy who is out of work and looking for a job these days, There are over four who are neither working nor looking for work. So if you track the unemployment happy talk, you are missing four-fifths of the problem.
2: Were they working at one point?
1: Some of them were, but many of them are long-term dropouts from the workforce. What you see if you look over the history of the post-war era is... uh, a series of declining trajectories, almost like you know, failing rockets. Um, each younger group works less at any given age in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties than the group before them. It's almost like rings on a tree, and so now you have a very large number of men who are basically long timers out of the workforce altogether.
2: Hmm. So why aren't they working?
1: Well, um, one reason that doesn't fly is that we can't say they're at home taking care of other people. Um, there is an enormous care chasm between guys who are out of the workforce and women who are out of the workforce. It's like an order of magnitude different. If you ask these guys, and we do in these different labor surveys, you know, why aren't you at work? Uh, only a tiny fraction of them say that it's not because there are any jobs for them and today that would be kind of implausible if you look at the uh peacetime you know labor uh labor shortage that we've got going on um they some of them say that it's because of health problems some of them say that it's because of other problems but it's not because of a lack of work and it's not because of things that they're doing at home
2: when the did people. the problems start in earnest like these big numbers
1: that's a really interesting question for the first two decades of the post war era there was no sign of this problem at all. Um, then, starting around 1965, uh, a flight from work by men started to become evident in these numbers. And the really weird thing about this flight from work is that it's almost like a straight line from the 1960s to today. I mean, wh- wh- you know, people are a little bit disorderly and you know irregular, but if you look at the numbers themselves, it's almost tracking a straight line from through the 60s and 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, the 2010s. Um, It's been going on uh, with almost, you know, kind of geophysical regularity now
2: for almost 60 years. I don't get it. If, If it were pandemic related, I would get it. They got paid by the government to stay at home. They liked it. The pandemic induced a lot of stress, anxiety, depression, and people that they're struggling to get over to this day. I don't get 50 years of men leaving the workforce more and more and more like I don't. What is that?
1: Well, Megan, it's, it's, it's clearly unnatural because for what, 10,000 generations, 50,000 generations in Homo sapiens in our species, men are kind of like a natural provider force. And now you have an enormous contingent of men in modern America who are cast into this unnatural role as dependence upon society. You couldn't have something like this happening if we weren't as fantastically prosperous as we are today. Um You go through the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, up to the present, and you can come up with different kind of explanations that kind of work in part. Um, One of the things that is said about uh, rich countries in general is that they've been affected by uh, what Economists call structural and economic transformation, you know decline of manufacturing, uh, outsourcing. China enters the WTO. I mean, there's some truth to that in uh, depressing work rates and labor force participation for men all around the world, but it doesn't really explain what you see in our country. I mean, uh, you wouldn't have a straight line out of the workforce. If this was uh, a consequence of the business cycle, right? You'd see something that was kind of wavy. Uh, You'd see the China shock when China entered the WTO. You don't see that at all. Uh, Is it related
2: to to women entering the workforce in greater numbers? I mean, are these like, you know, is it a role reversal where these guys are staying home and and the wives are bringing home the bacon?
1: Well, you know, there are some people who argue that I'm not so persuaded, and I'll tell you why. I mean, women obviously have always worked. It's just since the end of World War II that they got paid for it in the labor force. But there was this huge uh, influx of women into the labor force after World War II, and uh, if they were displacing men, you know, the... uh, the participation rates would have flatlined. Instead, what we mm. saw is that the participation rates went way up for like fifty years, from nineteen fifty to you know, you know the end of the century, and that means that women were kind of supplementing men since. Uh, 2000, the participation rates for both men and women have been going down, so they've both been feeling the same pain. Um, there's also something that I mention in this, uh, in this book, uh, which we might want to keep our eye on. Uh, I'm not sure that it's a four-alarm fire yet, but it's, uh, 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 let's say, a yellow flashing light. Uh, this is the women without work problem, for prime age women who are out of the workforce and don't have kids at home uh, and aren't currently married. There are about 3 million of them. And some of the patterns that they're reporting about their own lives, what they do with their own time, their drug use, mm-hmm. are looking a little bit too close for comfort to what I show in this book about the guys.
2: What's prime age? What, what is the prime age? What's the range?
1: Oh, prime prime age is 25 to 54.
2: Oh, and same it's as in the not, television key demo that we use to base our advertisement rates on. 25 to 50, 54, that's the money spot.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't come up with this. I wasn't smart enough to come up with this demographic, but that's it, it's kind of self-evident. You know, prime working age is 25 to 54, but it's mm-hmm. not just all dollars and cents. I mean, this is also key group for raising... Uh, you know, raising children, starting families, it's got a tremendously important social component to it too. And a lot of the dropouts, a lot of the male dropouts, they're disproportionately unmarried, don't have kids at home. I mean, you drop out of the workforce, you're also dropping out of family, you're dropping out of community. One of the things which I think is really kind of spooky that you see from looking at some of these numbers is how the, uh, Workforce dropout guys say that they're spending their time. What do they do between you know, waking up and going and going to sleep, right?
2: Yes. This is right. Well, their I to, self. I want to get to that one second, like what they're how they're spending their time. But before we get to that, like yes. if you said this this began in like even the 90s, I would get it, opioid crisis hits, people are, you know, they're pulled into this darkness. And then sometimes it's hard to find a job, right? Like if you're an active addict or a, a, even a non-using addict, you have a criminal record. All this makes reentering the workforce m- much tougher, right? Much tougher. So that I would get starting back 30 years before that. My God, it's, I'm so confused. If you said this started in 2007, the advent of the iPhone, I'd say I get it. People, it's addictive. You spend all day. You can't pull yourself, pull yourself away. You said COVID, right? Like this is a much bigger problem. It's been going on for decades and Against it is the is the genetic gravitational pull of hunter gatherer, support family, be the man, you know, like it's the same reason why, you know, women like me who work can't deny that for most of us, there is this biological pull to be with our children. And like that, that's why we wrestle so much when we're not all day. Anyway, I'm so confused, Nick. I don't I still don't get it. But I do think those events I mentioned probably exacerbated it. No,
1: sure. Absolutely. Let me mention a couple more. Um, The decline in the post-war era of the previous family system, you know, the two-parent family norm, Mm -hmm. um, guys who are not in the workforce are way more likely not to be in families either. The rise of the uh, modern welfare state, our uh, European uh, cousins tell us that we're terribly stingy. But in 1965, we were even stingier. The welfare state was still a twinkle in Lyndon Johnson's eye back then. And one of the things which we have seen over the last half century, I think, is how... how terribly destructive the, um, the whole disability archipelago of benefit yes. payments for being out of work because you're uh, said to be not able to work has been. Uh, another thing is crime and punishment. We had this ex- incredible long-term crime wave that was followed by this explosion of punishment. We've got tens of millions of adult ex-cons in the United States today as well. We don't track them very well. but It's clear that uh, they're disproportionately overrepresented in this men without work
2: Yeah, because they can't work if they have to check the box on whether they committed a crime. Who's going to hire a guy who committed a crime if they've got in today's day and age For other applicants who didn't commit a crime or, you know, they just do a background check on you if you depending on the job you're applying for, it makes it almost impossible for people who are ex-cons to find work, which is a problem for all of us. I'm not it's not a bleeding heart thing. It's a this is a problem for society. It's not good to have ex-cons sitting there out of work doing absolutely nothing. Guess what happens? More crime.
1: Yeah. And you could. And certainly there are millions and millions of ex-cons who can be rehabilitated, who can re-enter work, re-enter family, re-enter society. We've got this strange thing in the United States. We're basically a data-oriented country, but we've cloaked all of the ex-cons and in statistical invisibility. For some reason, Uncle Sam has no interest in coming up with information about their circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, that means, among other things, that we can't have evidence-based policies in the United States uh, for getting them back to work because we don't have the evidence.
2: Hmm. How, how big a factor was covid right when we started literally paying people to sit on their couch e- even people who didn't need the the check were getting the check of i how much was it like co- yeah 600 a month a- then 300 yeah, 600- i
1: mean a week 600 a week then 300 a week for 18 months um oh, wow. well i mean obviously covid was a catastrophe it killed a million people and uh but most of the people the overwhelming uh number of people who died from COVID were older than labor force age. There are still some people who are at home sick uh, with long COVID who say they can't work because of long COVID, but that's, in the scheme of things, a pretty small number. We're talking about hundreds of thousands. Um, We're about 4 million short Of where we would have been on pre COVID trends in terms of workforce total numbers, which coincidentally is about the increase in unfilled jobs in the United States since before COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, This isn't all men, this isn't all these prime age guys we've been talking about. We've got a new face to the flight from work in modern America. Most of that gap is uh, older former workers. Uh, men and women 55 and older, who were the kind of sole uh, ray of sunshine in the pre pandemic, uh, you know, kind of tableau, because their work rates had been going up for a generation. Also, we're seeing more of the um, younger women, uh, I think, in this uh, labor force dropout uh, population for the time being.
2: Who is paying their bills? <laughs> Not to dumb it down, but like, you know. It takes money well, to live. you got to pay your rent. you got to buy your groceries.
1: Well, uh, Megan, uh, your listeners, of course, you and I and your listeners are paying. Uncle Sam, which is either us right now or our children and uh, unborn grandchildren in deferred uh, debt payments, right? Um, mm. We had this extraordinary thing that happened during the pandemic crisis. Pandemic crisis is the only time in history that I'm aware of when a na when Disposable income for a population actually increased during a national economic crisis. This was because of the fire hose of money, borrowed money, that was shot at households with the $600 a week and the $300 a week and other interventions, right? During the uh, years 2020 and 2021, the national savings rate more than doubled, which is to say that households had more money than they could spend from these transfers. Uh-huh. And a nest egg of over two and a half trillion dollars was put aside just from these transfers. That's apart from other wealth effects, you know, the uh, zero interest rate that uh, your previous guest was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, you know, two and a half trillion dollars, a lot of money. And an awful lot of people use this either to supplement their earnings or to substitute for their earnings. And I think what we're seeing right now is a certain amount of you know, being out of the workforce on premature or maybe premature and unsustainable retirement.
2: I mean, they, they better realize like those checks, maybe they still have dough in the bank, but that, that doesn't last very long. You know, you, you, even if it's 1200 bucks a month or a month, that does not last, get you very far. We're about at the point where that money should be running out. But again, pre-existing problem. So now to the question of what they are doing all day. We would like to fantasize that they are doing like what my mom used to do when she was a little younger in her free time. She would drive the other ladies who are elderly to church on Sundays. And I've got a big friend who's into meals on wheels and so on and so forth. Mm. that's not really how they're spending their time.
1: Yeah. So shortly after uh, the end of the Stone Age, I was taught economics. And back in those days, as a kind of a mental tick, economists would say you were either working or you had leisure. Now that is a wrong way of looking at it because leisure is a very special way of using your free time. It's a way of using your free time to restore yourself or to elevate yourself. Um, it's also possible to use free time in a way that degrades you or degrades you and others. And unfortunately, that's what we see in the self-reported time use, uh, that for, you know, male dropouts from the workforce. Um, they say that they do almost no civil society stuff of the type your mom used to do. Uh, mm. They say almost no religion worship, almost no uh, charitable or volunteer, uh, volunteering activities. Mm. They, they got an awful lot of time on their hands, but they say they do very little, strangely little help around the house, either with chores and you know housework or with looking after people in the home. What they say that they do is watch screens. Okay. The surveys don't tell us what they're looking at or what type of screens, but like 2,000 hours a year on average of looking at screens, I mean, that's mm-hmm. as much as a full-time job for a lot of people. And some of these surveys ask the uh, poignant question, do you uh, do you use pain medication? One of the pre-COVID surveys uh, showed that almost half of the dropouts uh, reported using pain pills or pain medication every day. So it's not Mm -hmm. just sitting at home playing Call of Duty or whatever, it's Mm -hmm. playing Call of Duty stoned. And uh, need I say, this is not a springboard for getting you back into the labor market. It's much more likely to be a kind of a pathway towards deaths of despair. It's kind of a portrait of misery.
2: Right, these people—they need mental health services. These people sound depressed to me. It doesn't sound like they're like, you love my existence on the government dime." They sound down and in need of assistance. To me, it's like a yet another reinforcement that we need more readily available mental health assistance in this country, whether it's via Zoom or just cheaper and better. By the way, because too often cheaper means crappy. It needs to be cheap and good.
1: No, it's it's a, it's a. It's a portrait of uh, suffering and misery and anomie and loneliness and disconnection. I mean, you, know, you, you can play video games while, you know, you can watch television, you can do all sorts of things to entertain yourself a little bit. But if you substitute those things for like your real life, you're going to be in a in a pretty tough place.
2: Yeah, you need to look at another person's flesh and bones face and body and have eye contact in person life is not the same without that stuff to jump back to something else you mentioned the long covid i i feel like you wrote something i must have been from the book i can't remember but it but it was something about how the long covid numbers don't add up with the actual covid that went around like there's some question about whether these people really have long covid is that from you i'm trying to remember where i got that
1: I I only made the distinction between numbers of people who reported having long COVID and happened to be out of the workforce, and numbers of people who said they were out of uh, the workforce because of long COVID. So kind of accidentally, two of those groups overlap a lot. But when you ask people, uh, are you out of the workforce because you have long COVID, you get a surprisingly small number about Right now, about four hundred thousand persons. Remember, I said the gap was about four million. Four hundred thousand is a lot of people, but it doesn't account for the majority of that gap.
2: Hmm. I mean, COVID obviously is a, like such a disruptor, but I do think that, and and I do believe in long COVID. I think that's actually a thing. I don't I don't dismiss that that some people are suffering with that. Who who the hell knows? It's such a pernicious virus. However. I also think there are people who just say they have it because it's something that's accepted. It's, it'll get you out of work. It'll get you out of judgment from a lot of people in terms of your w- wanting to stay at home on your couch and watch TV all day. And that's not okay either. I don't, maybe a, like, maybe we need the return of some stigma for those who just don't work.
1: You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned the word stigma because we seem to have veered into this kind of value-free, judgment-free, you know, kind of uh, environmental space. And that's pernicious. That ends up hurting people more. Uh, Stigma is the kinder, gentler version uh, of enforcing social norms kinder and gentler than the police state, right? It's a way of kind of helping people, you know, straighten up and uh, and fly right. And one thing which is you know, self-evident to those of us who've, you know, had long lives in the workforce is that work isn't just dollars and cents. Um, and work is a service to other people that helps you complete yourself. It, it helps you... Um, It helps you uh, self-attain. It it helps you, you know, kind of earn your own kind of success, no matter what your station is. And being attached to the world through the workforce, like being attached through family or being attached through community, uh, you know… It's good for us in ways that go way beyond dollars and cents. There was mm-hmm. that old funny Greek guy Aristotle who said mm-hmm. that human beings are social creatures, and we are social creatures, and we suffer if we're not in society.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you think, but working is so important. I think it just gives you a purpose and makes you feel like you matter. It could be any job, but um, especially if you manage to line it up with something that thrills you or excites you. Um, I. I I don't know. And I think the contrary is also true. If you don't work and you think you're just going to be sitting around, and you're going to be doing your favorite things. You're going to be whatever, gardening or you're going to be reading. Or you're going to be, I don't know. I think the odds are higher that you're going to be searching the screen. After a while, you're going to be on that damn screen all day doing something that probably depresses you. It's just the least amount of effort for the highest return, but it's not good for you. It's just not good for you. So what do we do about this, Nick? I mean, I wouldn't even know where to begin if we're going to solve this problem.
1: Well, I mean, every one of us, I think, can uh, do a little bit on this. We can start by committing truth in public. I mean, you've been kind of doing this. <laughs> uh, you know, you you say that uh, work is important. It's important for all sorts of reasons uh, that go beyond the dollars and cents. I mean, we have these conversations around the kitchen table or around the public square. I mean, uh, being able to tell the truth on this kind of matters to begin with. Um, there are things which we can do in our social conventions which i think matter a lot during my lifetime i have seen the death of the summer job and when i was a kid you know when i was a teen uh it was a thing uh, you know boys and girls teens all yes. got summer jobs 10 years put you know uh, postponing work for 10 years has no good consequences for society government can do some things and it can also avoid doing some things and those might help uh, more skills vocational skills. It's kind of a scandal that the educational establishment uh, has omerted the word vocational. That kind of tells you a little bit about the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we need to turn the uh, disability uh, insurance system, the government uh, disability system on its head and flip it from being uh, subsidizing and encouraging dependence and helplessness to a kind of a work first principle. We had a great uh, welfare reform in the 1990s for single moms that did very well. I think we could do something here. Also, I'd kind of like to see more information uh, about the uh, ex felons. I mean, I'd like to see us uh, at, at least take them out of the statistical uh, you know, darkness. They shouldn't be untouchables. Uh, there's some things which we can't do. I mean, I don't have the magic wand to fix the family in America. I don't have the magic wand to get us back to 1965 value systems. But if we know what we're missing, we can kind of grope towards solutions, I think. So uh, I, I've painted a pretty, um, pretty sobering picture, but I don't think that this is one that we give up hope on because uh, it's, it's been a very bad bet for people who bet against the United States of America for about 250 years.
2: Mm, well said. Wow. Thank you for calling attention to it, uh, for writing the book, for sharing your expertise with us. Really, really appreciate it. And it's just scary. <laughs> all this is very scary. Uh, all the best to you, Nick. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much. Oh, so interesting. Ron DeSantis weighing in just now. One of the things I've learned in this job is when you're leading, when you're getting things done, you take incoming fire. That's just the nature of it. Oh, shots fired. (laughs) Uh, We'll hear what President Trump has to say tonight. I have my alarm set. My team and I are going to be on a group text and we're very much looking forward to discussing it all with you tomorrow is uh, starting at noon live on SiriusXM XM Triumph Channel 111. And we will dive into the announcement with those in the GOP who are happy to see Trump in the 24 race and those who are not. Plus, we'll have Alex Berenson here with us. In the meantime, go to megan.kelly.com, Sign up for the American News Minute. It's such a fun correspondence with a bunch of highlights of the week's news and the highlights from the show. And what you see Mr. Strudwick doing this week will shock you. More than any other thing you've ever seen before (laughs) thanks for listening you guys don't forget to download the show uh the podcast and youtube.com see you tomorrow thanks for listening to the megan kelly show no bs no agenda and no fear